Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Steve Levine, author of The Powerhouse, America, China, and the Great Battery War. Pleased to be here, Jim. Yeah, great to have you. Looking forward to this. I uh, really enjoyed reading that book. I'll tell you a little bit more about Steve. He's the editor-at-large on Medium, writing on the impact of tech, science, economics, and demography on jobs, society, politics, and geopolitics. Prior to joining Medium, he was an editor for the future for Axios. Steve is also a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Foresight, Strategy, and Risks Initiative, and he's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches energy security in the graduate-level security studies program. This is the second of three episodes focusing on various aspects of the fight against climate change. Last week, we had on Jessica Transick from MIT, where we reviewed a wide range of technologies, their learning curves, uh, where they fit in the fight on climate change, and we included batteries. In this episode, we're going to talk about batteries a lot. First, Steve, why are batteries so central to the transition to carbon neutrality? Thanks, Jim. It's, it's so good to be on the show and you know, talk about uh, my favorite topic batteries. So transportation. Around the world, there are 1 billion cars right now, all of them using gasoline. And in about 10 years, the estimate is that there are going to be 2 billion cars. And so, you know, this is in places like China and India, uh, Nigeria, where this added billion comes in. And so uh, all those fumes are pouring into the atmosphere. And so to the degree that those second billion cars and as many as possible of those first billion become electric, not burning gasoline, it, it means that, uh, that we're not pouring more CO2 into the atmosphere. And, and, and in fact, when, when we see climate forecasts, the apocalyptic projections of where CO2 temperatures and climate are going, over the next, uh, you know, one, two, three, and five decades, they factor in that extra billion cars are internal combustion, and so it's it's not just just sort of a notional thing that you know that added billion aren't pouring in the CO two. It's that that future that we're worried about by looking at the at the projections changes and uh, maybe we can have a, a less bad future than the one we're worried about. Oh yeah, I would go further than that. You know, we have to basically make the transition period to zero carbon emissions in our transport sector, at least most of our transport sector. Maybe we can reserve a little bit for air travel, but uh, everything else has got to be zero emissions and electricity 
so far seems to be the only answer. Though, of course, there are a couple of alternative to batteries. And when I first jumped into this space in 2004, fuel cells were quite hot, but they've kind of fallen back for a number of reasons. And there's still from time to time talk about ultra capacitors. But it does seem like batteries at this point is where 80 or 90 percent of our bet ought to be. Would you agree with that? I think so. And, you know, the, the way that people talk about this, it, it sounds like spinach, you know, we're eating our spinach, we're going to switch to battery operated world. But it's actually, uh, I, I think this has to actually be sold in practice, it has to be sold as the meat portion of the meal. And, and uh, you know, something that's cool, something people want to do. And that's where, which I'm I will assume uh, at, at some point in the conversation, we'll get into who's marketing what. And so to the degree that people want to buy these vehicles, uh, not because they're forced to or because their conscience tells them to, but because they want to, that will be faster. Uh, that will be better. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is I've been looking into this. When you start looking at, you know, avoiding to paying gas prices, and particularly if we assuming we have a reasonable politics sometime in the future, and when there's a legitimate carbon tax to push us towards uh, carbon neutrality in a market-driven fashion, uh, it'll make a hell of a lot of sense economically as well as just existentially the experience of driving an electric car. So I see at least our future being essentially all electric cars by, you know, 2040 or thereabouts. And unless some miracle occurs in fuel cells or ultra capacitors, probably going to be battery driven. Yeah. It makes batteries probably a hundred billion dollar a year industry. You know, one of the biggest industries on earth. Yeah. One thing I wonder, Jim, about that dimension of electric cars, and that's how um, it's cheaper, right? You, you don't have to buy gasoline, but, but you, um, you plug in and uh, and currently when you when you plug in especially if you're doing at home the cost is pennies really i just wonder you know to to the degree that that you end up with um commercial charging stations around the country just like today you can find a filling station almost anywhere won't the price naturally converge right so these these commercial players What's their incentive for building them? Won't the price converge at some, you know, equilibrium with gasoline? No one talks about that, but uh, but I wonder if that is uh, where we end up. Interesting, you mentioned that because one would think, from a microeconomics perspective, that the oil companies will—the only way they can respond is to cut price so that we reach some form of equilibrium. Interestingly, the electricity generation industry and oil are decoupled, at least in the United States. Very little of our power is generated from oil. It's all generated from coal, nuclear, and natural gas. And so there isn't uh, this cross-linkage, which could cause them to go back up, but rather they're completely different sources. So I would say it's oil that you will see the price come down if this equilibrium starts to occur. Let's see. I'm not going to underestimate the um, proclivity of the profit motive. Yeah, on the other hand, again, think about this. One of the beauties of the electric car is there is always the alternative to do it yourself, right? Yeah. For a significant percentage of the, of the people, people who live in single family homes, quite simple to just put in your own charging station. And, you know, if that's 40 or 50% of the market, that's more than enough, I think, to discipline the marketplace on price. Yeah. However, this happens. Remember, you know, when uh, uh, just to close out that one part, that, the, that when people complain now, 
and, and, and they hesitate now to buy an electric car because of the uh, shortage of charging stations and also the length of time it takes to charge. That when the Model A came out and when the Model T came out, there were not gas stations everywhere. It took about 30 years for the commercial sector to catch up. People bought their gasoline at drugstores in uh, cans. And, uh, and, and so the same thing is going to happen with uh, electric cars. But I just think that, that, that this shift is going to happen much faster than, than people assume. The shift to self-driving cars is going to be much slower. And the shift to electric, I think, is going to, is going to be much faster. Though I do think the two are synergistic, and one of the reasons is that transportation as a service gets around the charging problem, right? So imagine for urban and suburban travel, if we're thinking of a fleet of self-driving cars, and when you want a car, you just hire one to come fetch you, those things can have their own centralized charging facilities operating at scale, highly efficient, high voltage, so that the charging time is only 30 minutes. And then for the end user, they don't have any concern about it. And I think that's when the inflection point really takes off because it's possible that the charging problem could be a hard to overcome problem, particularly for people who live in multifamily units and things like that. But once we get to transportation as a service, the problem entirely goes away. Well, so when you say transportation as a service, you're, you're talking about driverless cars, correct? Correct. I'm thinking of Uber and a bunch of competitors provide transportation on demand using driverless electric cars. Okay. That's my future for the 2030s. It won't happen until 2030. They were locked when they said it was going to happen in 2021. Ain't going to happen. 2030 is fine. We have to fix this by 2050 or 2060. And it means we have to do a lot of things between now and then. And so I see that's where the barrier against the adoption of EV just takes off once we get to self-driving cars and particularly transportation as a service where the charging problem goes away. Yeah. Okay. We're, uh, we're on the same page. I just, just what you just said, that a lot of people have been misled into thinking that driverless is around the corner, it's coming in the 2020s, and, it, and it's not. Just what, yeah. Yeah. There'll be limited special cases, but general buy a car that in most urban and suburban areas will work most of all the time, 2030 yeah. is a good guess. Might be a little earlier, but I'm planning on 2030. Let's talk a little bit about your book and your experience of writing it. I, I will got to say, I love the book. I mean, it drew me in. It was beautifully written, almost novelistic. Thank you. Uh, really, I'm, I'm serious. It was really good. It reminded me of a book called Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidder. It was a nonfiction, technologically driven, almost suspense story, just like this thing was, which a bunch of us read back in the day. One of the guys from my class at MIT was a minor character in the book. So all my friends and, and I read that book. And it reminded me tremendously of that book. Are you familiar with Soul of a New Machine? I am. I am. I'm so, uh, I'm so glad that, that you've said that. It's um, v- uh, very flattering. Well-deserved. It's just a joy to read. Sometimes you know, I have to read a lot of books for my podcast. Sometimes I have to force myself through them. Not this one. So a couple questions about the writing of the book. How much access did you have to these people? It seems like you had some amazing inside stories, and especially the Argonne Labs guys. Right. So the format of of research for the book was analogous to how Tracy Kidder did Soul of the New Machine. He embedded himself at, I think, it was it EDS? Data General. 
data general for one year. He embedded himself for a, a year of product cycle, the, uh, the creation of one iteration of the desktop computer that, that they were selling. And uh, I embedded myself for two years at Argonne. I, I shouldn't say Im- embedded myself. They allowed me. It was this arduous thing because Argonne is owned by the federal government. So this permission had to go all the way up it, th- through the energy department and up, up to the deputy secretary, who was the one who finally gave his okay. Be- because Argonne is where the uh, DOE's nuclear work goes. So they didn't want someone just sitting there. So I sat in that lab with the battery team on and off, right? Because I, I had to come back to Washington to, to teach every uh, Tuesday. So from Wednesday to Friday, basically for, for two years and then full time during the summer, I was inside the battery lab watching them do what they were doing. And so you got a chance to, you know, sounds like talk to them at some great length. You got their life stories from a lot of these guys, right? Right. So, so uh, one thing you have to know about battery guys, you, you've spent time, uh, I'm guessing, talking to a geologist, for example. You know, you, if you talk to a geologist, you know, one conversation is, it can be very long and filled with uh, color and very lively. Battery guys are like, you, you, you need the two years. <laughs> you need the two years to equal one conversation with a geologist not a not a very talkative bunch so so, so you have to you have to sit down uh, them get used to you and uh, and things take a long time right the, uh, the lead acid battery right uh, what was invented in the 19th century this has been a long-standing problem how how do we invent you know a truly practical long-lasting safe battery you know this is a uh, enduring challenge and so uh, so there was that the Argon folks, and then of course there's Envia, the startup group. It's a dual profile, parallel at, uh, in in the second half of the book of um, Argon, and then Envia, the startup in Silicon Valley that licensed Argon's technology with the uh, objective of selling it to GM. Yeah, we'll get to the Envia story. That was, uh, you know, that's where the thing really started to get like a detective story, right? Or a thriller. (laughs) But we'll get to that in a little bit. Before we, again, jump in a little bit more to the story itself, uh, could you explain to the audience the importance of the two metrics that everyone's always working towards? You know, the watt hours per kilogram and the dollars per watt hour. What are those two things and why are they so important? So one is... The density, watt hours per kilogram, density of the battery, how much energy have you packed into a small space? And uh, why is that important? Well, that's how far the car is going to go. And, and, and so if you're, you know, right now, the number uh, most of the cars have is like 230 watt hours per kilogram. And you can see it's that and then plus the engineering, you know, ingenious engineering that the car makers have done with uh, aerodynamics and, and, and weight and all of that. They're getting most of them over 200 miles per charge, which is outstanding. That, you know, that, that's incredible. But really, when you, when you think about it, they, they, need to do, they need to do better because um, in practical use, that's Let's say it's 250. 250 is a reasonable number. But that's if you don't use air conditioning, you don't turn on the radio, you're not using the defroster. 
which is ridiculous. And it's flat. You know, I live here in the mountains, right? Right. And it's about 40 miles from my in-town condo to my mountain farm. And you know, I figure, yeah, we could definitely make that with some room to spare, but probably not a huge amount of room to spare going over three mountain ranges. Yeah. And, and what happens if it gets cold, right? If, it, if it's winter, then you, 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 know, you can lose 40% of the capacity off the top. So really, 250 turns into 100, and that's not en- enough. So, so they really need to have, in my view, a sticker distance. They need to get up to 400 because 400 will be, you know, will be 280 yep. in, in practice. Good target. And that's, you know, I guess at the high end, Elon Musk is approaching that, at least in his stickers. Right. With the, with the new Roadster, right? With, the, with his redo of the Roadster, he is getting up there. Now, that's where you get to the other side of the, uh, of the equation, and that's the price. And, um, you know, we like to say, or people trying to sell electric cars or batteries like to say that people will take account over a 10-year period or, you know, five-year period, whatever it is, how much they're going to save. But that's not how people buy cars. Nope, they don't. Yeah, I reject that. So how much is this compared with the internal combustion engine car? That's what they're going to. And so the price needs to drop to uh, $100 or, or lower per uh, kilowatt hour. And so right now, it's, you know, it can, it's 200 or it's, it's uh, you know, the, the best. They're secretive about this. So the people who watch this are in, inferring. Uh, but but it's believed that Tesla is at right around 100 or a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, and that everyone else is like 150 or a little bit higher, which is incredible. When I started researching this, it was 2010, and the price was like $1,200, the objective at, the, at that time. If we want to be equivalent to internal combustion, we need to get to $100. And it was regarded as something like that you're going to land a spacecraft on Alpha Centauri. You know, it, it, it was just an, an impossible dream. But here we are 10 years later, and we're almost there. Yep. Uh, and, and so so the forecast, there is an ag- aggressive, but I think realistic forecast by uh, the folks over at Bloomberg New Energy Finance who are really good when it comes to um, forecasting renewables. And they think that uh, 2024, 2025, there's a crossover and and the price of batteries. Uh, and so that that's the largest component of the price of an, an electric car, around 40% of the price. It can be even 50% of the price. There'll be a crossover. And in the latter, starting in the latter half of the 2020s, the electric drivetrain starts to be cheaper than than internal combustion. And that's when you're going to start seeing this uptick in the sales. People are going to to be willing to give an agnostic look at electric cars. Yep. I absolutely agree. And it is important for people to keep in mind that in the fundamentals, minus the battery, an electric car has some huge cost savings, right? An internal combustion engine, you know, a whole bunch of explosions per second. It's a damn hard thing to engineer. And you have to have a fancy transmission, which electric cars don't need. And you have to have an exhaust system and you have to qualify for all these pollution standards. And uh, then you have to carry all that weight around. Of course, batteries are heavy too. So in the long run, everything I've 
Fred seems to say that electric cars should be considerably cheaper and last longer than internal combustion cars, but not until the battery price crosses over that crossing point you were talking about. Yeah, I, th- I think the big the big takeaway for me is uh, th- that I think that that your listeners is that this is not one of those ain't it cool, you know, gimmicky and and sort of pie in the sky. This is one of those futuristic things that is going to happen. What we don't know, and I, I'm saying I think it's going to happen, but really we don't know. We don't know what the demand is going to be, and that that's where the car makers need to be very uh, mindful about what they put on the road, right? They like, like Musk, you know, Elon Musk putting, you know, cool cars that a number of people desire, you know, desirable cars. And, you know, GM is not GM put the bolt, which I think is an excellent car, but it, you know, it, it, it's not appealing looking. And so uh, all the car makers, VW, BMW, uh, they need to think, really hard about design. Yep. And I pulled down some data. We're going to talk about this later again. But in 2019, it looks like Tesla sold about 158,000 cars. Now, that's just the three model. Throw in the uh, the X and the S, and it would be more like doing the thinking here and here. About uh, almost 200,000 cars. The Toyota Prius Prime was 23,000. The Bolt was 16,000, and very quickly you get down to below 10,000. So really only Tesla has figured out how to sell these things at scale yet. Right. And I hope the other car makers are paying attention to that. You know, do they really want to sell these cars? I think Volkswagen does. Volkswagen is trying to remake itself. Yeah, the new Audi is really cool. I'm surprised it hasn't sold more. According to this number, it sold 746 in December. Yeah. So I won't remember. Maybe you remember. There's something wrong with the car. Ah. This is why. And they've withdrawn it to re to retool it. Oh, dear. I did not had not picked up on that. But yep, it is interesting. You know, who would have thought that Google would beat Yahoo and Microsoft in the search wars when when they came out? They were a tiny little guy, right? But they beat their ass and the big boys never recovered. It's at least possible that Tesla could do that with the big boys. On the other hand, the car business is a hard business, so it'll be interesting to see how that works out. We'll talk more about that at, towards the end. Okay. Now, I'm going to pull a quote out of your book because it actually resonates with my, some of my own personal experiences. You said, charlatan and hucksters abound in eras of invention since no one can truly know what will become the next bonanza. And batteries have been unusually marked by exaggeration and outright fraud. As we talked about before we went on the air here, back in 2004, I took a deep dive into mass storage of electricity at the utility scale. And I learned about all the technologies and I uh, went around and talked to the companies and I went to conferences and it was scary in 2004. Within 90 days, I was considered enough of an expert to be on the panel. So I go, you're scaring me, people. I don't know shit about this stuff, but I obviously know more than you guys and a lot of people do. One of the things that was just amazing at that time was just the obvious bullshit people were laying on. At the time, it was thought about $2 billion a year were being spent in mass electrical storage. And even me, who had 90 days in the field, could, with a uh, piece of graph paper and, and a pencil, could figure out that none of these technologies were even close to working. And, uh, you know, I've 
lived through the PC boom, the dot-com boom, the early internet boom, and they were all full of bullshitters and fraudsters. But I don't think I ever saw anything quite as blatant as the battery folks. Anything in your mind about why that is? Yes, because it's very hard to do. So this is um, chemistry and thermodynamics. And how do you meet all the specifications? In the case of vehicles, you know, something that will pack more energy. So that's distance. Also um, move the energy through the battery rapidly. That's acceleration and cost and not ignite and explode and your car's on fire. So all of those requirements uh, are very hard to accomplish at one time, but the payoff, if they are successful, is very, very high. So you get that combination, something very hard, very high payoff, and then you get people making stuff up. Yeah, it was quite an eye-opener. As I said, I've been through various uh, bullshit fests in, in, in the industrial cycle, but everything quite the battery, guys. To your point about the hard to do, after my first 90 days of self-education, I went and hired who a number of people pointed to as the guy in electrochemistry. He was retired, about 80 years old. He eventually died at the very end of my project. Sorry, wonderful fella. I'd go out and visit him out in Mountain View every month or so. He was a Brit. He had a good old boy Brit accent from Northern England. He'd say, James, one thing you have to remember is this is not uh, computer technology. You know, you guys are used to everything doubling every two years. In electrochemistry, if we can make significant innovations in 20 years, we think it's a big deal, right? And he and I sat down and tried to figure out when we'd reach what I had determined was a threshold for the mass utility grade storage of electricity. And we built a timeline that said, <laughs> it's very interesting, $100 a kilowatt hours, what you needed to make the businesses work. And second, we figured we'd get there in 2024. Wow. Isn't that interesting? It's very interesting. You guys should have bet on that. I did make a big bet on it, but as an, an inverse bet, because I was prepared to launch a business to do mass electrical storage. Yeah. And so my six months of work and, you know, $10,000 worth of consulting fees convinced me not to do that. So that would say that's a, you know, between the venture capital I would have raised and all that, it would have been at least 30 or $40 million that would have got pissed away. So I made 30 or $40 million for the world by not wasting it by doing my research. I put all my research in a box and put a label on it that said open in 2020. So later this year, I'm going to open that box and look at the research and see if that, uh, frankly, at this point, I'm, uh, I'm retired. I don't do that stuff anymore, but I'll maybe pass the box on to somebody else. I did do a whole bunch of analysis on what it took to make that business work, but that's a big takeaway. And I think you're right. It's way harder than computer technology. And so many venture capitalists and so many entrepreneurs like me are used to working in this, okay, it's hard, but it's not that hard kind of environment and where things happen relatively predictably and rapidly. Electrochemistry ain't like that. It's black magic. Yeah. So uh, this year, the um, Nobel Prize for Chemistry was shared by three men, the inventors of the lithium ion battery. The lead in inventor was John Goodenough, who's 97 years old, and he invented his part of it 40 years ago in uh, 1980, and it was commercialized 10 years later in 1990 by Sony. You know, pick your point of starting out the, the timeline. It's either 30 or it's 40 years since the invention or the commercialization, 
And the lithium ion battery is still the cutting edge. And all that they're able to, to do in using engineering, thinking of different ways of producing the battery and then executing, applying battery energy in a, in a, in a car through those two mechanisms, they're able to get 7 seven or 8% more efficiency each year out of the battery. That's not much since, as you've said, uh, semiconductors double every uh, 18 months. But if you do that over 10 years or you do that over 20 years, then you get this amazing progress from 2010 until now, the price has dropped by a factor. And so, uh, you know, that's pretty good. And, uh, you know, now just moving over to this area where we started, which is uh, exaggeration, uh, the, the hype, you know, you hear really in the, uh, the newspapers, university announcements, and also in Silicon Valley about this or that advance. And, and really, this is, it's, it's, it's like chatter, it's noise in the background, and, and it, it's something, okay, okay, put all of your data on one slide so I can see it in one place, so I know that there's no, uh, no uh, nothing slipping up your sleeve. And then also, you know, let's see you scale it up. Let's see you get it into, a, into an actual automobile. Uh, so that's where we are. Yep. A fair number of venture capitalists listen to this show, I believe. And so you guys should keep that in mind when people come to you with mass storage or you know transportation storage proposals that shit's going to take longer than you think, probably, right? And if they don't have something demonstrable right now, it's probably going to be years before they have a product in the marketplace. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing, uh, if, if you don't mind talking, uh, getting a little bit into the weeds on the chemistry. So... I've been hearing in the last two, three weeks about advances on the anode side of the mo most of the ad advances have happened on the cathode side. And so you've had this lopsided series of advances with metallic lithium, putting pure uh, lithium metal into the anode. And, and you know that that's sort of a holy grail, lithium metal being highly volatile and that, and that's why you see uh, batteries uh, going up in, in flames because often the lithium will get it exposed to air or to moisture. But in a few places at the same time, commercially and also in academic labs, there have been advances with lithium metal. And what I'm hearing from the scientists, you know, we're not there yet, but we're a lot further than we were and uh, we're not cycling, like we're, we're getting the energy, we're up to 400 watt hours uh, kilogram. You know, the, the objective is to get to 500. Uh, and if they can get that, you know, then that, that's so huge. And in, in either, you know, you can make your cars cheaper or you can make them go further. You have to decide how you're going to deploy that added energy. Uh, but that's huge from, you know, you're going from, you know, 230 or 250 up to four or 500. But the cycling, they need to get up to, you know, 600, 800 cycles, you know, char charge discharge cycles. They're not there yet. They're, you know, more, I think they're more like uh, 200, you know, two or 300. But I'm hearing the ex excitement in their voices versus the last time I checked in with them on this kind of r research, which is, you know, they, it's pretty morose if you haven't made you know, a, 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 any, any progress for years on something. And so, you know, I mean, keep 
tuned. I'm going to keep tuned on this. And uh, there could be, you know, something that could be commercial, you know, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw out a year just for the heck of it, you know, but maybe 2025 or so. Okay, that sounds cool. Now let's get a little bit more down towards the meat of the story. A lot of the action is set around Argonne National Labs, and you even tell the history of how the land was acquired and all that. Why don't you give us a few minutes on what are these national labs? You know, when did they emerge? Uh, what were they for? And then maybe transition to the battery unit. Sure. Argonne was the first national lab. So this is where in 1944, Enrico Fermi and his team conducted the first uh, nuclear experiment, nuclear fission. And this was done at Stagg Stadium uh, at University of Chicago. And after he was, after his team was successful, he and they went off to Los Alamos and finished off the first atomic bomb. And, and, and we know a history after that, but it was decided to keep the research going. And so the first Argonne stayed there. It stayed at University of Chicago. But then after a while, it expanded, it had grown. It was, it was nuclear research. And that's when, when they picked up that land out about 30 miles outside the city and, and established Argonne as a place to, to do nuclear research. But from there, uh, you ended up with a constellation of these national labs, and, and they're across the country, Sandia, Oak Ridge, Los Alamos, I already mentioned, and these, uh, you know, they, they do a lot of the basic research, uh, all kinds of science, but energy is a big, is a big part of that. And, that, and that's where, uh, when we hear about China, for example, uh, putting the state behind so much uh, fundamental research and what is the United States doing? And are we falling behind? The National Labs, is it's our crown jewels. It's uh, super fundamental, su- super important. And um, uh, shifting over to what I watched them do, that's the battery lab. And the, the uh, batteries, it's you know, a relatively small group, you know, like between 30 and 50 people in that one lab. Battery research, by the way, is also done at Sandia, it's done at LBL, Lawrence Livermore at Cal Berkeley. Uh, but the main, the country's main battery, fundamental battery research is at Argonne. And uh, the, the, the team, you know, it's gone through various iterations, in, including uh, researching hydrogen, which you mentioned earlier, but mainly various iterations of batteries. They also do research in the, in the same general, not, not exactly the same department, but affiliated in making internal combustion, by the way, more efficient. I mean, really, really cool work. So uh, when we look, for example, at the, the electric cars that are on the road right now, and that will be on the road over the next few years, use uh, battery chemistry uh, with an acronym NMC, nickel, manganese, cobalt. That chemistry was invented at Argonne. And so it's, 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 it's stuff is, yes, it's fundamental, but here we have a, uh, you know, a very, very important commercial application of the output of the lab. And uh, the, the inventor, Michael Thackeray, just retired from, from the lab over the last few months. 
Interesting. And you talk a little bit about how the rise of the national labs kind of helped offset, at least in part, the decline of the great industrial labs like Bell Labs. You talk about that a little bit? Yeah. This is, you know, a sad story about, well, let's just say the, the economy has developed. So big companies, uh, especially the 40s and the 50s and the, and the 60s and, and going a little bit into the 70s, uh, the thing that made the, uh, the U.S. economy so great, such an outsized success internationally, were the industrial labs. Bell Labs, especially, but Kodak's lab, Xerox Park, uh, GE, all of them had their own laboratories, all of them churning out inventions, their own inventions, and then stuff that they would license out. But for a number of reasons over the years, the big companies uh, sort of pared themselves down. They closed or hived off the labs. When they were hived off, they shrunk. And so really the, the United States no longer has uh, much in the way of commercial research labs and uh, companies to a large degree are relying on the national lab system uh, to play that role in giving them an edge, giving, giving them an international edge. You know, this is another book. It, sh- it should be another book. I think in, in Silicon Valley, the big companies, the like uh, Google and Apple and 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 so on, they're big in inventors. But after them, other parts of the economy not doing what they should be doing, and uh, and they've really high. What they've done, Jim, is they've hived off what they should be doing onto the public. So the the taxpayer is paying for the research side of their commercial enterprise. Yep. And actually, I know a fair amount, particularly about what Google does in their research labs, particularly in the area of artificial intelligence. And they do not do 20-year projects. If they don't see some way to monetize it within five years, they're not going to do it with a very few exceptions. And so none of them are taking the very deep fundamental research that Bell Labs or Park used to do. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's all been socialized, essentially, right? Yeah. That'd be a great topic for a Medium article. You're right. So these, it's it's really, it's across the spectrum. It's research, it's training their people. The big, the big companies are, uh, rather than bringing in uh, a bright young person straight out of college who you can just see has so much potential and, you know, just needs to be given a, a skill, which is what big companies used to do. They're relying on, uh, you know, the community college system or, you know, the, the college systems to, uh, you know, to take that, take that added step. Uh, then they move into the companies. Again, uh, you just call it socialized education, socialized research. Uh, it's, it's dumping off on the taxpayers the, the roles that used to be part of each of the big companies. 
Yep, absolutely. And we've let them do it. It'd be a great, great article on Medium. You may not know this, but I write articles for Medium from time to time. And I think it's a really wonderful platform. It's a really fun platform. So I'd encourage you to do it, Mr. Editor-at-Large. <laughs> Thank you. Let's move on to another topic, something that's near and dear to my heart. We've had several conversations in passing about this and one whole full episode on it with Brian Nozick. And I would call that the sociology of science and the sociology of research. And you actually talk about this some, though you didn't call it that, which I have framed as the principal investigator problem, where, especially in U.S. universities, and it appeared from your book at Argonne, particularly earlier in the battery search, but I'm sure there was a strong tendency there all along, for these single, relatively senior people to have a small team around them. And it basically meant they couldn't attack a problem bigger than what a principal investigator and a few postdocs and researchers could do. And yet some of the problems on the level of batteries were much more transdisciplinary and reached across many more technologies than a single principal investigator-oriented lab was likely to do. Could you talk a little bit about that and what the culture there, the sociology of science was like at Argonne? Yeah, this is such a good point, uh, point that you raise. What you end up seeing is, is that what drives research in the national lab, I should say, as, as I saw on the battery, is the funding cycle. So the, the DOE puts out you know, a, a notice that they're willing to, you know, to, to fund you know, projects of all kinds in electrochemistry. And if you win, it's a three-year three cycle. So say you get $10 million, it's you know, three, $3.3 million over a year, over three years. And, uh, and then you, you put together your team and, and you uh, work on that. And, and it's ex- exactly what you're describing. It's this pernicious system where you're trying to keep your group working. So you need to, uh, to keep pumping out proposals, uh, funding proposals. And in, instead of, uh, so we know that we want a battery that can power a car that goes 500 miles, that will cost uh, $100 per kilowatt hours. And so you would bring together five teams, bring together 10 teams, put the whole lab on it, put several labs, but the system works against that. So I do think that because, uh, because of the way we go at it, in, in one way, it's a good system because you end up you know, with two or three guys working day and night, and you know, that's a lot, of, a lot of firepower versus you have a big team, and there's a lot of management. You can end up with bureaucracy and, you know, efforts get spread out and they're working, you know, separated by geography. And, and before you know it, three years or five years have been spent on this. But on the other hand, you know, there's a real upside to putting all of your resources on one thing. If I can have a couple more minutes, one of the main characters in the book is a former Bell Labs senior supervisor at Bell Labs. And he said, you know, we didn't do this, but we should have you know, 30 years ago decided that in the same way we decided we were going to tackle GPS and transistors and so on, we could have decided that we were going to tackle the battery. And, you know, we put, you know, a gigantic team on it and we learned every, you know, from the ground, we learned every possible thing. Uh, from the inside, uh, h- how the electrons are 
operating within, you know, uh, within the cathode and so on, which incidentally, even though the lithium ion battery was invented 40 years ago, researchers still don't know what exactly happens on the inside of the, of the battery. A lot of it, they're, you know, they're, they're still speculating. But, but anyway, his, his point was that the, the magic of that Bell system of having that large scale approach uh, to solving big problems, he felt, uh, P- Peter Littleworth is his, is his name, he felt that Bell would have tackled batteries and, and we wouldn't be in the same place where we are right now. I think you also pointed out Stephen Chu, who was the energy secretary sort of in the middle of all this, also had that sense that recompounding something like Bell Labs, you know, spread across multiple historically competing national labs was the way to do it. Right, right. It's it, one of the things that happens in the book is the United States sort of takes this this approach uh, where uh, they they establish a, a battery hub at Argonne and they throw one hundred and twenty five million dollars on it, which, you know, maybe it doesn't sound like a lot. maybe it sounds like a lot depending where you are. But it's a lot for the battery world. That's a ton of ton of money. But what they ended up doing is they dispersed it over you know, a number of labs, over a number of teams, diluting the impact of this, of this money. So you, you didn't really end up. It's, it's been over five years. Uh, it's been about six years now. And uh, you, know, you don't have, you don't have an, an outcome you, you can point to. So, so you do that, uh, Jim. You need to do that, but you need to do it in a way that somehow bypasses the bureaucracy. I, I don't know how Bell managed that. Bell somehow was able not to fall in, into the bureaucracy tra- trap, the, you know, the, the waste the money trap. You know, they're, they're you know, concentrating the firepower in an efficient way. Yeah, I, was, I had the, the great fortune to be able to spend a day at Bell Labs in the early 90s. And it was starting on its way down at that point, but it was still one of the most amazing places I've ever been, except, of course, the Santa Fe Institute, where I spent a lot of time, which is the most amazing place, right? <laughs> yeah. So what is, So would that be a great place to embed? Yeah. If you want to write about the complexity science and Every hard problem, all these dire problems that we suffer from as, or will be suffering from as a society, every one of them has the aspect that they're complex problems. And these are the smartest people in the world. They're the ones that invented, about complexity at least, they're the ones that invented complexity science mostly, or, or shall we say borrowed very aggressively and did it very well. So yeah, if you want to tell the story of complexity and how it can either save us or not, if we don't invest enough in it, that would be great. Happy to set you up. I'm on the board there. I'm the former chairman, good friends with the president, et cetera. So uh, yeah, we can definitely do that. At least you could have a conversation, see if you think it makes sense for you. Well, now we have a conversation when we get offline. Absolutely. Now, this business about the sociology of research and, you know, the issue of fragmentation at the national labs, there was one character in your book, and I say character because your book does read like a novel, who I resonated with to the nth degree, and that was Jeff Chamberlain. He seemed like he saw the problem, right? And he tried to fix it, but he couldn't. Yeah. Well, he's, he's still at work. Jeff's the main character in the book. And he is a, a PhD chemist, but his job at the lab, they, they recognize that, that his genius is that he's an organizer and a salesman. 
And so uh, he, you know, the first thing they did is uh, is get him to go out and sell the team's patents to commercial players. That's how the NMC got into GM's cars, for example, J- Jeff's stuff. Uh, but then, but then they put him in charge of that hub, and um, yeah, he he uh, the the system defeated Jeff, and uh, he he would probably be the first to say that. But but he's done something super interesting. Is he's gone the VC model? I don't know how much money he pulled together in the end. It was about three hundred million dollars, a lot of money from investors, whose big bet through Jeff invest in near commercial battery, cutting edge, futuristic technologies that will move the needle significantly. And so he is outside the walls of Argon, although he still has access to the labs. And he is is putting small amounts of, of this capital into bets in various companies. And uh, so he's still trying. Is he in the private sector now? Yeah. I guess so. It's private, but again, it's associated with Argon. Okay. It's called the Volta Institute. Well, that's kind of interesting. As you can probably tell here, I'm obsessed with batteries. I am too. And maybe I can get you to introduce me to Jeff. Maybe I'll have him on the show. Oh, he's good. He's really good. Yeah. We can really nerd out on the technology, right? Yeah. Yeah. So much more to talk about the Argon story, these interesting characters. Mike Thackeray from South Africa, Khalil Amin, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Both very interesting characters, but I think we don't have time to go into that. So let's go to the second big thread in your story, which is the Envia story and Sujit Kumar. Maybe just start with Mr. Kumar's background, which was fascinating, and then roll pretty quickly into the Envia story. Right. So Sujit, a, uh, a up from the bootstraps immigrant, grew up in India and managed to get himself into technological institute there. And, you know, one, one of those, you know, striving individuals, you know, the kind of people who end up immigrating. And uh, he, he ended up getting a scholarship to the Rochester Institute for his Ph.D., and, um, you know, one of those cliche stories arrived in New York with like a dollar in his pocket, but did really, really well uh, in, in, in his Ph.D. program, ended up impressing his professors and, and, you know, just speeding up the story, ends up in Silicon Valley, uh, teamed up with a VC guy, you know, with a bucket of money in a startup called Envia. And he had been looking around for a battery technology to work on. He wanted to invent, not invent, commercialize the next big battery. And so he did a search, uh, a, a massive search of all of the patents and, you know, in, in lithium ion you know, over the last numerous years. And he zeroed in on the argon technology, the NMC technology, as the most promising thing, the closest thing to commercialization that could push the needle the furthest get and get into an electric car. Uh, He was the first outside commercial player to show up at Argonne with a a willingness to license the technology before anyone else. He was the first one to find it. Because he had been the first, they were willing, even though he was no one, but they were willing to license the the technology to to him. That was at one startup, 
then he then he took the same stuff to another startup that was Nvidia, and and that catches us up to the narrative. So you have that 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 parallel narrative of Argon trying to take the NMC and and invent NMC 2.0, and that's where where you get that you know the battery to save the world, right? We're 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 going to tweak the original NMC and invent the 200 mile battery. At that stage, the best electric car on the road was the Leaf. It went 84 miles on a charge, and they we need to get to to 200 miles. That that was the mantra. And then and then you had Envia. Envia said, no, we're going to invent NMC 2.0. We're going to in, invent the battery that goes 200 miles. We're going to sell our stuff to GM. So, so you've got those, uh, a race between Argon and Envia. Yep. And what happened? <laughs> so that that's the narrative that I said. So I spent the last year of, of the research was toggling physically between Chicago and Silicon Valley. So I would, tra- I would travel to Silicon Valley and visit with uh, the the NVIA guys, and and then I'd go out to Chicago and visit with the Argonne guys. Or if I wasn't able to go to each one physically, then I would get on the phone with them and say, "Okay, what happened this this week?" And uh, you know, with a with with a deadline of the book uh, approaching at the end of the year, Sujit was telling me week by week how much progress they had made, how Im- impressed. GM was with what they were doing and how GM had decided to license their their technology. This is this is huge. These car companies don't do this. They're very very concerned about reliability. They go to big established suppliers that can produce massive scale uh, and have been doing it for you know for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, that that they were willing to take. Uh, a, a chance with Envia was a big feather in Envia's cap, and so that was that was going to be the big finish in the book. Is that is that at the at the end? You know, you have uh, you know the two immigrants, uh, you know, start up their business, their their success story, and they they end up uh, selling their stuff to G- GM. Uh, they both end up super wealthy, and you end up with the with a two hundred mile car. Should I give away the ending? I mean, it's already. Yeah, let's do it. The book has been out for a while. I think it's okay. Yeah. So I got a call one night at my home and it was uh, Steve. I have to tell you something. And uh, and what's that? And it's that Sujit has been lying to you. <laughs> Everything, Mike, my stomach, my th- every part of my body fell right? <laughs> from from that. that uh, and, and it. And it, and it was that, um, you know, for whatever motive or for whatever reason, the batteries did not do what he said that they did. And there had there had just been a huge crisis at the company where GM had discovered this and a, a, a huge falling out between them and, and, and Via. And at that moment, they were, they were trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? And well, what they did was they canceled the deal. And they let Envia off the off the hook. They did not sue Envia. They didn't make Envia pay back the down payments they had paid. Uh, but it was a huge letdown in terms of where a lot of people thought that the market was going. 
and, and where that story was going, where Envia was going. Um, and of course, it completely undermined the book, not the whole book, but the end of the book. Right? I had to you know, reimagine how the book was going to close. In the end, uh, I mean, should, should, I, should I tell you, you know, what sort of I think happened? Sure. So I, I don't think that the Nvidia people, I don't think that Sujit is, you know, we, we talked about uh, fraudsters and uh, connivers and all that. I don't think that Sujit was a fraudster and that he um, intentionally or, or malignantly misled GM. I think what happened is that he had been responsible, he and, and his team, been responsible for making enormous progress with NMC and making it much more energetic than Argon had. And it really did have the metrics that he was showing on the slides. He didn't make up those numbers, but there, uh, there were faults and it wasn't ready for commercial deployment, but he thought he could be. It's one of those aspirational things. He got in over his head. He thought, okay, I'm going to sign this and I'm going to be able to, to make the progress that I'm, that I'm promising here, that I'm saying I've already made. But then he discovered that he couldn't, or he, at least that he, he couldn't on the time scale that he had promised and that, and that GM expected. Ah, you know, that's amazing. And you know, that was, it was this kind of a sad ending to the story in that regard. We, you know, I was kind of rooting for Kumar, right? As you said, just an improbable story up from uh, nothing in India. It got a, somehow got funded, somehow did a deal with GM, had a great team, but electrochemistry is damn hard. Yeah. And by the way, someone else, their, their VCs kept funding them for quite a while, for years, and, and they were never able to overcome the challenges in the material. It's very, very, well, you just said, it's very, very hard to do. And you're really stuck with, unless someone can, you know, magically come up, you know, with the fix or some other material, they're stuck with that seven or 8% progress every year. Yep. And as you pointed out, 7% progress is great, but it's not IT type speeds. And it's really hard to deprogram Silicon Valley from thinking that way. But yeah, it happens. That'd be a lesson to everybody who wants to fish in these waters. These are hard waters to fish in. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of concludes the book from my perspective. And again, I'd like to really say this was in a very enjoyable book to read. He went into great detail on a lot of things, but it was a real story. It pulled one in. I'd really recommend to my listeners, if you're interested in batteries or even if you're interested in a cool story, read the book. It's some great characters. I was rooting for Jeff Chamberlain all along because I saw him as kind of a me type character, right? That's kind of the role I would try to play in the business world, uh, you know, not put up with the horseshit. Fortunately, I usually was able to defeat the bureaucracy, but uh, sad to see that he was not. Let me just throw throw out just on that point for your listeners that that um, at the book's website, stevelevinebooks.com, there are a, a series of very short one, one and a half minute videos with each of the main characters, like six or seven characters. And, and uh, when Jim makes the uh, URL for this podcast, there uh, will be a link. 
we'll definitely do that. Now, I was, I'm going to go look at it myself. I didn't even know that. But that sounds really good. So now we talked before the show, you've kept up on what's happened subsequently. I think the book was published about 2016, something like that. Yes. That means the research was done in you know 2010 to 2013 and a couple of years to write it and a year for the publishers to mangle it. And uh, here we are. So what's happened since? In particular, the big story since, and you do mention it in places in the book, is Tesla. Tesla changed everything. Yeah. So two things that happened. One, one, so you've got uh, you've got two chemistries on the world market. So one is the NMC, which is in everybody's cars. So that argon technology has taken the world by storm, except Tesla. Tesla uses NCAs, nickel, cobalt, aluminum. You know, Musk has his own reasons for for using that. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, you know, that's the stuff that he's putting into these double A size batteries. And then they cram 8,000 of those batteries into the floorboard of all of their cars. But that, that's why he's been able to uh, manage this because that style of battery, all the bugs have been, all the kinks have been worked out because they've been making those for decades now. You know, it's a very clever move. Anyway, Tesla has taken the world by storm. He's making super cool cars, people are buying the cars. He's jumped the uh, uh, categories from uh, from people who want to be green to people who want to be cool. Which is a lot more, obviously. <laughs> yes. And why, look, look, you know, there were 400,000 people lined around the block at Tesla distributorships around the world to put $1,000 each down to order the Model 3. That's incredible. And I think there was 200,000 people the first day that slapped down money for the pickup truck. Right. So this year, the Y, the Model Y, which is the crossover SUV, remember that that is the single biggest selling category of car in, in the United States, the, the uh, crossover SUV. You know, women buy and drive 55% of those cars. Men buy 70% of the Tesla. And so uh, if, if, if you have women being, being the biggest buyers of cars, you need to appeal to women. And so when that, when that Model Y comes out, suddenly you're going to have women looking at, and I think possibly buying in large numbers, the Tesla, you know, Tesla Model Y. You know, this, is, this, is a, this Model Y is a potential inflection point. The, the Cybertruck, I don't know, Jim, it's to, uh, that that doesn't seem to be that uh, that that's going to go mass. I think it's going to sell a lot, but do you, do you expect a lot of those to sell? I don't know. I put an order in just with it. Why the fuck not? I'm a pick, pickup truck kind of guy. I live on a farm. Le- seemed pretty zany, so I put down my $100 or whatever the hell it was and got in line. And are you going to take it? I was probably near the end of the of the first day, so I was there at the 200,000th. It'll probably be quite a while, and there'll be some of them out before I have to decide. Right. But yeah, they, they weren't that expensive. You know, as crazy toys go, uh, I've done worse. <laughs> and and what about your friends? Have Do you know other people who did that? Amongst my, you know, country boy folks, you know, nobody, nobody's interested in it. Look too zany, right? Amongst my techie friends, uh, I think a few did. Yeah. But I think it'll be, uh, you know, it's it's an exotic. It's a, uh, what they call it in the car business, a halo model. Yeah. That uh, they don't expect to sell. That kind of like the Corvette is for a Chevrolet. Yeah. And the Viper was for Dodge. Uh, sadly, I just sold my Viper, eh, my 1993 original Viper. 
Wow. So that gives me room in the garage for the, uh, the Tesla truck. Uh, we shall see, but let's get back to the kind of the more hard nose stuff a little bit. Sure. You do make the note that Tesla does use the NCA for their vehicles. They use the NMC for their stationary, you know, for their house batteries. Right. Is there something about NCA type batteries that has allowed Tesla to routinely and basically always have longer quoted range than anybody else? Well, it's a cost reason. So I asked Musk, why why are you using the NCA when everyone else is using the N- NMC? And he, he said the cost per kilowatt hour is is cheaper and is consistently cheaper. And that, and that if he were in charge of producing GM's cars, that the first thing he would do is get off of the NMC. Interestingly, though, in his Shanghai facilities, he's ordered um, an MC. And, and so us uh, geeks, you know, uh, batteries are wonder, you know, wondering, well, what are you doing there? Are you, are you going to load up an MC into, you know, the Model 3s and the Model Ys that you make at, at your Shanghai facility? We'll, we'll, we'll watch that. But the NCA, it was for cost reasons. And also the deal that he made for the supply of his batteries, batteries was with Panasonic and Panasonic produces those cylindrical, the small cylindrical batteries with NCA. And the, the, you know, the, these were, and these are the batteries that they had perfected. You know, they were able to produce them reliably off the shelf, you know, not having to work out any kinks. And, you know, it was a smart move. And why didn't anyone else think of that? Yep, he did it. He and I can still remember when they showed the pictures of the early ones. It looked like a whole bunch of AA batteries glued together with Elmer's glue, right? Well, that's yeah. It's just a little bit bigger than the than the AA. Yeah, but I think I have some of those batteries for one of my cameras. They're a little fatter than a AA. All right, so that's Tesla. Now everybody and his brother is gearing up to sell actual electronic vehicles. What do you think? Give us your uh, baseball prediction for the next five years of the across the bigger car companies, and/or are there any other startups that you think will make a big difference? So I'm I'm skeptical now of the um, of the luxury category. So uh, there, there are a ton of startups, Silicon Valley and other places in, in the United States and, uh, and in Europe too, that are trying to out Tesla, Tesla. So me, meaning the Model S. Right? So they're, they're coming out, you know, with 80, 90, 100, you know, uh, $120,000 cars, Jaguar is, and, and the startups. These cars are, are very cool, but how large is that market like that, that's for me that's not serious it's that, sort of like the dot-com era when everyone sees one winner and they pile all of them pile in with exactly the same uh, product and then then it washes out and one's left in terms of who ends up being winners who ends up being losers it is super important that they reach that price inflection point and that's where you're going to start to see, see sales take off. So, you're, so for the next few years, these are not going to be priced correctly to really sell. But uh, if you're going right, if you're going by what by the projections, but in 2025 and from there, that that's when you're going to start seeing things sell. I think that the uh, that the contest is going to be between the Germans and Tesla. And I, I think that that uh, VW because they're so hungry 
They feel they're in an existential race to survive. They totally screwed up with Dieselgate and, and they've put all of their chips on the electric car. They're, they're, they're going to, um, to change over very rapidly their whole fleet, all of those, right? Porsche, Audi, VW, all, all of their car companies, all of them are going electric. And so the new electric Porsche, look, look at the reviews. I mean, the uh, reviewers love this car. Yeah, I read those reviews. I, I, uh, I'm going, I want one, goddammit. Yeah, out of this world, out of this world. Now that's a real comparison. You could see that one giving the S a run for its money because a Porsche has cachet, the name Porsche, and, the, and then the way the car is described. Uh, but also Audi, right? one, one of my neighbors. Uh, so the, the S and the X, the, uh, the SUV with the gullwing doors, uh, that, you know, they, they look cool. But people who buy those kinds of cars, they have enormous expectations for what's in the interior. They want it to be like Apollo, right? It should look like, right? It should feel and look like luxury on, on wheels. And it doesn't. It doesn't feel like that. The X doesn't. So they've been waiting for Audi, for Audi to produce its e-tron. And, uh, and, and as we discussed, the first iteration of the e-tron, something's wrong with it. So they're going to have to come back out. They're going to have to uh, produce that, uh, that again. But, but I expect a lot from Audi. But not just them. Daimler. BMW, all of them are in this race. I think the Germans want to win it. They have the engineering chops. Uh, that's why I see. Look, look in uh, like 2024, 2025, 20, going forward, Tesla and the Germans. Hmm. What about Ford? You know, got a very interesting CEO there, Jim Hackett, who's actually a guy I know. He was a big fan of the Santa Fe Institute. He used to come out there all the time when he was the CEO of Steelcase. And before they uh, moved him up to be the overall head cheese, he ran the electric vehicle division. Where do you see uh, Ford being in the race? Okay. So I was just going to, you know, I was just going to piss all over Ford. But the electric Mustang has gotten very, uh, very good reviews. I haven't driven one. I've, I've driven the Audi. I've driven all of the Teslas. Well, let's see how that goes. It's uh, the only reason that I hesitate is is that Ford hasn't seemed to be as intent on winning. And so, if you're not uh, really in the game, can you win it? You know, they basically discontinued all their car models except for the Mustang, and they claim they're going to come out with 21 electric vehicles over the next few years. Yeah. We shall see. And, and shall it's see. interesting that this Mustang thing isn't really a Mustang. It's actually a crossover SUV, which you pointed out is the biggest selling category right now. Yeah. So it might be an interesting first foot in the water for them. I'm not going to bet too much against Jim Hackett. He's a damn shrewd dude. He is. Maybe I'm being unfair. I should give Ford a harder look, and I will. It may take them a little longer to get there because they were way behind the curve under the previous administration, but we shall see. I found a chart which claimed the forecast by Lauren McDonald, I think it was called, the guy's person's name, on their guess on the growth curve for the U.S. electric vehicle market. And they point to about 2028 as where it crosses the chasm and you have something like an 18% market share for new sales of vehicles as EV. How does that strike you? Is that too conservative? Is that about right? Do we not know? We do not know. 
it's very similar to a lot of these, you know, the futuristic technologies. We have um, one half of the of the fraction in all the cases. We have the denominator. Uh, we know how much the supply is, and we don't we don't have the numerator on any of these, so we don't we don't know what the demand is. So let's wait for that. Let's see how many cars of the electrics uh, are sold once they reach that price point. But Again, BNEF, right, the, the uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, they're a little bit more aggressive than McDonald, did you say? Lauren McDonald. McDonald, where, uh, who's he affiliated with? I don't know. I just Something I found on the web, so you know what that's worth. It's something I found. Okay, it's right. Someone's going to be right, and it doesn't seem outlandish. I don't think that it's going to be Exxon's forecast. You know, the oil companies, they, they have basically – the same number, the same uh, percentage of the total fleet and annual sales uh, that are now being sold in the year 2050. <laughs> Dream on. It's impossible. So, somewhere, somewhere between there and, you know, where BNEF says we're going to be. I personally think, you know, again, I'm, I'm just repeating myself, but I do think people are going to be surprised. I think that VW and BMW are going to produce electrics that people want to buy. Uh, Volvo will too. Volvo is in this, very much in the game, owned by the Chinese, right? Geely yep, yep. owns Volvo. Uh, so that's interesting. And, uh, and then Tesla, you know, um, Elon has been on a tear. So you can have fantastic cars. It doesn't mean <laughs> that your shares should sell for over nine hundred dollars each. I mean, his—I think the value of his shares are are really in inflated. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the—you uh, can have both, right? You can have inflated share price and a great company. Yep, and I think he probably has both. Yeah, currently his market cap's higher than Ford and GM together. Which uh, yes, <laughs> he, he basically had to put them both out of business to to equal that market. But maybe he will. I mean, we. I mean, uh, I actually owned some Amazon stock early on, but that got to a period where I said, all right, this is getting ahead of itself. Guess what? I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. So maybe you shouldn't sell your Tesla stock, though. I don't own any. I wouldn't own any. Let's see. What other comment do I want to make here at this point? Oh, yeah. So I'm going to run something by you, which I think is just nutty as it can be. And this is Bernie Sanders' energy plan. I've gone out front and center and said, this is either a plan for a Stalinist dictatorship, or he's delusional, or he's just a usual lying politician. Bernie claims that all 100, in fact, he uses the characters 100% of all transportation and all electrical generation in the United States will be on renewable electricity by 2030. I say there's no fucking way. Jim, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, so he, he also is going to ban fracking in the United States, he says. The uh, purpose of this podcast episode is it's one of three episodes on your climate change series. So that, that's what we're talking about. But, you know, we're not there yet. We're not, you know, we're not, not at the point of zero emissions. So we still need oil to keep civilization going. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we don't want to end up back in the Stone Age. And so, no, we're not going to end up drilling no oil in the United States by 2030. It just it, it isn't going to happen, nor should it happen. Because, 
again, you know, we want to, we want that runway that we end up getting to renewables, but we're also able uh, to keep, you know, going on 8 billion people, you know, the living standard reasonable. Uh, and so that, you know, that, and then, you know, how fast you get on renewables, that's hard, you know. Well, for one thing, we're talking about batteries. Batteries need to get there. We're not there yet. Yeah, and you know, Jessica Transic pointed out, waiting is a free lunch on learning curve. Things do get better, not as fast as we'd like, but they do get better. Yeah. So that if we can be more realistic on our time curve, you know, I've put down the flag that I'd be tickled pink if we had all transportation electrical generation on renewables by 2050, and I'd actually add in plus a whole bunch of nukes. You know, I would triple our nuclear fleet at least. You know, then you could do it, but trying to do it by 2030 is literally impossible. Why somebody would say that and put it in black and white, I don't know. Okay, Jim, I tell young people, you know, when they're talking about disinvesting from the fossil fuel and all of that, then go to graduate school and become a battery scientist. Ah. Go invent the super battery. And, and I say this to Bernie too, okay? then let's see part of your platform, you know, tenfold investment in battery research. Great idea. Again, that was what in our conversation with Jessica, she laid out a whole series of areas where we need more investment and batteries, I believe was at the no, solar might've been at the top and batteries number two, but they were closely related. Because of course, if you're really going to use solar for all your electrical generation, you have to have storage, right? Yeah, Guess yeah. what? The sun does not shine at night. You know, <laughs> even a politician ought to know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a wonderful conversation. We had some other topics we could talk about, but I think we've reached a point where this is a great place to wrap it. We had a lot of good energy, a lot of good conversation, and covered a lot of space. So I really want to thank you for coming on, and I would strongly encourage my uh, listeners to read your book, The Powerhouse, America, China, and the Great Battery War. Thank you, Jim. It's been great. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.